again. It is great to have you all worshiping with us this morning. We are traveling through the book of Malachi, and we are going to be looking at a quite an important part of Scripture today, a challenging part of Scripture. This is not going to be a feel-good message. It should challenge and encourage us in who we are and how we walk with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Before I dive into the passage, though, I do want to lay some context so that we understand essentially what's happening in Malachi, the purpose of the book, and then how we're arriving at the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. We've been traveling through this book, and the first thing that we have to recognize is, historically speaking, the people of God have gone into exile. They've been brought back from exile. Their home has been reestablished. The temple has been rebuilt and kind of put back together. The altar is there. The walls are there. Life is good. But the people of God are still upset with God. They are saying, God, you're not doing what we want. You're not doing what we think you should be doing. And so in this, God sends the prophet Malachi, whose name in Hebrew means my messenger, to bring about a very important message to the people of God, which is simply this. Y'all look great on the outside, but your hearts are very far from me on the inside. Get it together or there are going to be challenges and problems because I know who you are and I know what's going on and you are worshiping me with apathy and condemnation in your heart and yet when you do so, I can't bless you. And when I can't bless you, you then turn and say, I don't love you. That's essentially what's happening here. And so Malachi comes forward to warn the people of God and say, look, here's the deal. God cares for you. God is there. God will be with you. He has been with you. He will continue to be faithful. And what's interesting and what's important to recognize in this is this is the last prophetic utterance that we see in the Old Testament. After Malachi essentially speaks and brings this prophecy, we then recognize that in Scripture we turn where? To the New Testament. And so in that, we have to remember that there's about 400 years where there's prophetic silence. This is known as the intertestamental period. And during that time, people wonder what's going on. Malachi comes forward and says, straighten up. But then he also says, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to encourage you, and I'm sending you a Savior. But this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage, and we're going to be looking at men who look great on the outside, but they're looking for a loophole on the inside. Their hearts are very far from God. As we travel through the first couple of passages in Malachi, what we discover in the book essentially is this, that the people of God are looking and they kind of say, God, how have you loved us? They're complaining. They're upset with God. And immediately God turns and he says, I have loved you. Now, I've said this before, it's very important to recognize that the manner of how that's spoken is not, I have loved you, I am done. Not, I'm finished, I've loved you, I no longer loved you. But the way that that word is expressed is a reverberative word into the past. I have loved you and I want you to look back in all of the ways that I've remained faithful to you, in all of the ways that I've drawn myself to you. And then we move through a series of passages where he demonstrates his faithfulness and then also brings out essentially 
what's happening with the hearts of God's people. God turns to them and essentially says this, look, here's the bottom line. You're complaining about the fact that I don't love you, yet you're coming to me with blemished offerings, blemished sacrifices. We read in the passages that essentially what people are doing is, is that they are bringing a, a goat that is not in accordance with what is needed in Old Testament law. They're looking and they're saying, oh, you know, I've got the male goat and I've got others, but I'm supposed to bring my best to God. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring an afterthought. I'm going to bring a leftover. And so I'm going to either bring an animal that either has a broken leg or I'm going to bring a female or I'm going to do whatever, but I'm not going to bring my best. And I'm going to lay it on the altar and I'm going to expect God to bless it. And interestingly enough, last week I talked to you about the fact that God kind of gives this response back to them and he says, look, what you're giving me isn't your heart. And because of that, if you continue to do this, I'm going to wipe the dung of the animal on your faces because that's what you're doing to me. It's kind of funny. I talked about it before. I said, hey, if you ever get upset with your kids and you want to discipline them, try that one on for size. If you don't behave, I'm going to wipe animal dung on your face and everybody will know. But the reason for that, as we look in scripture, it says awful, the word there, okay, essentially is the innards of the animal, and the innards of the animal were considered unclean. They were considered defiled. And in a sacrifice, essentially, before the animal was sacrificed, many of you who are hunters know when you have, obviously, an animal, what do you do? You gut it, and a lot of the insides you do not use. You throw them away. Well, the same thing with a sacrifice. The insides of the animals were taken and they were then thrown into the trash. And so what God is saying is, look, if you keep coming to me with half-hearted offerings, trying to look good on the outside, asking me to bless you, while all the time I know your hearts aren't in it, this is what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to wipe animal dung on your face and you will be carried out like the offal to the fire. Pretty strong message, isn't it? Now, in a contemporary way, what I want to encourage us all in is, is that should cause us to think through, where is our heart in worship? Do we come to God with true hearts in worship? Or are we apathetic toward him? Are we here just going through the motions? Are we here saying, God, bless me. Give me what I want, how I want, and when I want it. But God, don't ask me to have a heart for you. Don't ask me to live my life for you. You exist to please me. I don't exist to worship you. And that's the whole story of what's going on here. And so, in this, Malachi is essentially bringing a message to the people of God saying, God cares for you. God has loved you. God will always love you. But you have become apathetic toward him in your worship. And so the first thing that I want to ask of all of us this morning is, is it possible that we become apathetic in our worship toward him? How are our hearts for him? 
is church just an afterthought? Is church just something to tick off the list? Is church something just to get done, to then say, well, I did it, I feel good about it? I wasn't really there, I wasn't really present. I kind of went, sat down in the seat, sang a couple of songs, heard some guy talk about some guy that sounds like an Italian prophet, did my thing, and now that I leave, I'm just gonna cast all cares to the wind, I'm gonna leave God at the door. I'm going to essentially cash my chips in. I'm going to go out into the week, and I'm going to live however I want to live, and then I'm going to come back on Sunday, kind of get all prettied up again, come in here, look good, act good, and ask God to bless me, but the reality is my heart is far from him. And that's what we're dealing with here. But this morning, we've come to discover that the situation gets even worse. It gets even harder. We begin to realize that not only are the people of God not worshiping him with their whole heart, but what we're discovering is that the guys are looking at other women. And they're looking around and they're saying, hey, these other women are attractive. And I know that we're not supposed to marry other women. I know that's what the law says. But what can we do to kind of change that to where we can marry foreign wives and still look good in front of God? That's what's going on in this passage. We're just going to come right out and say it. And so in this, God is saying, hey, look, this is just another example of how far your hearts are from me. You want to look good. You want to act like you are righteous. But I'm telling you that what I see inside of your hearts is you desire all of my blessing, but you have no heart for me. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Malachi uh, chapter 2, we're going to be looking at the last kind of verses in this passage. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16. And here's what we're going to start off asking. How does God view marriage, and what does he desire from it? Now, in this context, we have to recognize that it's being laid into the unfaithfulness of God's people, of which Malachi is essentially calling them out and saying, your hearts are far from me. But this does have implications for us even today as we look at our heart, not only for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but our heart for marriage, the importance behind it. But then also recognizing at times, do we try to change things? Do we try to manipulate scripture to make ourselves look better when it's right there in front of our faces saying, hey, this is how we should live and this is how we should be? So we're going to ask this question. How does God view marriage, and what does he desire from it? We're going to dive right in to chapter uh, 2, verse 10, and it says this. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Okay? Rhetorical questions that Malachi is essentially speaking via God to have people begin to say, hey, there's something drastically wrong. And then he says, Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Quite a profound statement. Cut him off even though he's bringing offerings to the Lord Almighty, even though this individual or these individuals are wanting or asking to look good in front of me, I'm telling you to cut them off. 
because their hearts are far from me. Then he says in verse 13, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? And then here's your answer. It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in spirit and do not break faith. Challenging passage, isn't it? God puts it right out there. He says, look, I see what's going on and your hearts are very, very far from me. But as we dive deeper into this, I want to take a little bit of some of the aspects and help us to see really what God is after Help us to understand what God is speaking about. Because to be honest with you, unfortunately, the church has done a very bad job in interpreting one of these verses, which I'm sure you're all looking at, which is Malachi 2.16. And we're going to speak to that in just a minute. But before we do, I'm going to lay some context to where we can see essentially what God is asking, as well as what God is doing And the first thing that I want to encourage us all in is seen in verses 10 through 12. And it's simply this, that God views marriage among believers as a covenant before him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we come to faith in Jesus and we get married, we must remember and recognize that it is a covenant that we make before God. It's not just with our partner. We stand before God and we stand in a covenant that is made before God. There is a third party in essentially the contract, but covenant. And so marriage is extremely important. What we recognize today is is that the world utilizes marriage as sort of a test drive or a test run. Well, if it works, great. If it doesn't, that's okay. I'll just move to a newer model, no big deal. It's not that big of a thing. And yet, what God is saying is, people of God, marriage is an expression of who I am. Your marriage is a direct reflection of your relationship with me. We're also going to see in this that the reason that God is wanting the people of Israel to stay with one another is not racially bound, Okay, this is not a racial issue. This is not saying that interracial marriage is wrong. What is being said is, I'm wanting you to stay within to continue to produce godly offspring. The challenge that was happening is men were looking around and they were seeing other ladies that looked pretty good, but they were worshiping other gods. And the problem was, was as they married them, God was concerned that in that relationship, their relationship with God was going to be strained. That's the issue. That's what was happening. And unfortunately, what we're going to see is these men were looking and they were saying, look, this is what I want to do. My heart and mind is made up. So figure out a way to make me look good on the outside so I can do it, even though I know I'm not supposed to. It's a heart issue. And that's what God is after. 
And so the first thing that I want you to see is we talk about breaking faith or broken faith or in some of your Bibles, faithlessness. Now, this is very important to recognize because the word here or the words that are utilized in Hebrew are not the idea of, oh, have faith, oh, believe, okay? That's not what's being stated. This is actually, in each of the words that are used, an act of treachery. That's what you have to understand. Every time that you see breaking faith or faithlessness or removing themselves from faith, what we're seeing is to act treacherously, profane, be unfaithful, break faith, not trustworthy or reliable to a person or a standard. That's what's being stated. I don't want to be held to a standard. I know the standard, the law is, that I should remain faithful to the wife of my youth. But I'm going to deal treacherously and I'm going to look for ways to figure out how I can divorce her and marry a foreign lady who worships a foreign god. That's the issue. Okay? The heart of the people weren't for God at all. And they weren't for his standards. And so we look, and the first thing that we see, particularly in these verses, is, have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Pointing back to, essentially, Genesis and the Genesis account with the question to remind people of Adam and Eve. Essentially, Adam was created, but we also know what? That after Adam was created, God looked around and he said, yeah, things are good, right? But they're not great. Man needs a helper. And so what does he do? He creates Eve. And interestingly enough, where does he create Eve from? Okay, from man, from the rib. Okay, so that they are part of one another. Recognizing that the unity of a man and a woman in marriage, we become in covenant one flesh. So brothers and sisters in Christ, when we are married, we are united to our spouse. And the mystery that is there but it's true is that we are one flesh with our spouse. And so here's what I'm going to throw out to you. Okay, I'm just going to say this. Whenever you essentially, you know, speak ill of your spouse, you're actually speaking ill of yourself because you're one flesh with him or her. And so when you talk about the old ball and chain, really what you're saying is, is you're the old ball and chain. When you talk about the husband and all of the things that he does and the forgetfulness that he is or this or that or the other thing and you get and you gackle together, what you're doing is you're actually gackling about yourself because you're one flesh. So we continue on and it says, why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Okay? Breaking faith, dealing treacherously, looking and saying, I know that this is what we're supposed to do, but my heart and my desire is telling me that's what I want to do. So I'm going to look for a way to bend what is stated in the law to give me what I want and still look righteous before people. We don't do that, do we? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel, in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. 
Okay? That's the issue. And again, I want to be very careful on this. This is not speaking to the negativity, uh, negativity of interracial marriage. That's not what is being spoken about here. What's being spoken to is God is saying, listen, people of God, I want you to marry one another to create godly offspring. And the problem that's happening is as these men are uh, marrying foreign women who worship foreign gods, they're being essentially carried off in their worship. And the authenticity, okay, of the worship that is there is being desecrated because these men are now moving and bringing in foreign ideas or foreign ideals into the worship. And I want it to stay pure. And so first and foremost, brothers and sisters, we have to recognize that God views marriage among believers as a covenant before him. You enter in covenant with him when you are married. Marriage is to be taken seriously. Marriage is not a test drive. And that's what I'm going to talk about in the next aspect as we look in verses 13 through 14. God continues on, and he says, Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep in wells because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why. Now, I want to, I want to, I want to pause for a minute here, okay? You, you look at this, and you see these individuals coming forward with tears in their eyes, all the emotion, right? This emotional ploy, oh, you know, God, I'm trying so hard. I worship you, and I love you, and I don't know why you're not answering me, right? And you kind of begin to begin to become empathetic for them. Oh, gosh, you know, yeah, I'm really sorry. That, that feels pretty bad, right? Oh, you're not doing what I need to do. Why, God, Why? Okay, so let's pause there. On the outside, you kind of sit there and you say, yeah, I feel, I feel bad for them. But the issue is, is don't feel bad. Because in their heart, they're sitting there saying, you know what, I know that I'm in covenant with the wife of my youth. I know that I'm supposed to stay with her. But I'm looking and there's this newer model over here with less miles and a turbocharger and I want to trade up for that one. How do I do it? How do I get out of my contract? And here's what I want to tell you. Notice the word. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. And there is a difference. And so in this, what I want to show you is this. When we enter in marriage, we are in a covenant with our spouse before God. Now, I'm going to start off and I'm going to kind of play off of what I'm talking about. Here's what I want you to see, okay? Our spouse is not on lease with an option to buy, okay? It's kind of a pun to make light because I know this is a heavy subject, but I hope you recognize what I'm talking about. So when times are tough, we should not trade out for a newer model. What do I mean by that? Oftentimes in modern thinking, marriage right now is sort of a test drive. Oh, I'll get married. If it works, great, that's wonderful. If it doesn't, it's fine. I'll just figure it out later, right? And what I want to do is I want to put in the importance, brothers and sisters in Christ, of marriage and the marriage covenant as is designed by God. Don't take marriage lightly. And when you stand before God and you enter into covenant with him, recognize that it isn't a contract that can be broken when the car has too many miles, 
or when the newer model comes out. That's what God is saying. Now, a couple of things that I want to encourage you with, okay? Please understand, and we're going to see in a minute, that God is upset because the men were unlawfully marrying foreign women. That's the issue. They were looking, and they knew in the law that they were not called or supposed to do that. And so what they were doing was they were going to the priests and they were saying, how can we break the law, number one? Number two, so that I can exit out of my covenant and marry somebody else, issue number two. So they were also unlawfully divorcing their Jewish wives to do so. They didn't have right. They were looking for excuse how can we figure something out so that A, I can completely neglect what God's word says, but also completely enter into something that's unlawful? And then come to the altar and wail and whine when God isn't answering our prayers. Why, oh God? Why are you not doing what I'm asking? And God is saying, I'll tell you why I'm not doing what you're asking. You've broken covenant with me. And in this, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to recognize the seriousness of the covenant that we have before God in marriage. Now, here's the thing. I want to take a minute, and I also want to read to you from The Love Dare. Uh, some of you might know this book. There's some great things in it. Uh, if you have ever gone through it, it is a wonderful thing to do. If you haven't gone through it and you want to get closer to your spouse, I highly encourage you, you do. It's a book where there's 40 days, you go through it, you essentially take the dare, and here's what you discover in the 40 days. I'll give you a little hint, okay? A lot of people enter into the love dare saying, man, when I do this, I can't wait because as I do it, God's gonna change my spouse. <laughs> Newsflash, people. When you go through it, God changes you. And you discover how blessed your spouse really is. That's what goes on in the love dare. Anybody ever wants to go through it, let me know. I'd be happy to show it to you. I'd happy to give you some uh, references and encourage you to walk through that book. But here's one of the things that I want to show you. On the love dare, day 11, love cherishes, this is what it says. Don't let the culture around you determine the worth of your marriage. Okay? I'm just going to pause there. Doesn't culture today really try to determine the worth of marriage? I mean, there are so many statements to essentially the flatness of marriage, the test drive of marriage, the option of marriage, the sort of contract but not covenant of marriage. To compare it with something that can be discarded, replaced, is to dishonor God's purpose for it. That would be like amputating a limb. Recognize the seriousness of marriage. Recognizing the travesty of divorce. It hurts. And personally, I'll tell you, I get it. I know that. It is hard to deal with. But in a minute, I'm going to speak to that for those of us that are or have been divorced. And I pray that it brings hope and encouragement and love and uh, blessing to you as you walk with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Instead, it should be a picture of love between two, notice this, two imperfect people. Not one who's perfect and the other one who isn't. Okay? Two imperfect people who choose to love each other regardless. Okay, and I'm going to pause there. I absolutely adore Kelly. We've got a great marriage, but I would be lying to you if I told you that we never get into arguments and we never get into tough arguments and we're never, ever angry with one another. Okay? We've got a great marriage, and I praise God for the blessing that is there. But I will tell you that there are times when I don't feel like loving her. Anybody get that? Okay, do I see some amens there? Okay. But I choose to. There are those moments where it's time to roll over in bed and be the one who says, I'm sorry. Forgive me. There are times to be the one who rolls over and says, hey, we need to talk about this because I care about you and I love you, even though I'm mad, even though I'm hurt, even though I'm upset, even though I'm the one who feels like I deserve you apologizing to me. Okay? Whenever a husband looks into the eyes of his wife, he should remember that he who loves his wife loves himself. Guys, you want your wife to love you? Love her well. And I mean that seriously. Treat her as the apple of your eye. And here's what I'm going to tell you. Die for her daily. And that's not me. That's Ephesians. We are to die to self and love our wives well. And then it continues on. And it says this. And a wife should remember that when she loves him, she is also giving love and honor to herself. Ladies, when you love your husband, you're giving love and honor to yourself. Hence the intertwined mystery of two becoming one flesh. When you don't, and you're griping about your husband or you're griping about your wife, here's what I want you to recognize. I want you to take essentially a board, right? And I want you to take like a Nerf bounce gun ball and every time you shoot it, right? Say something negative about your spouse, but I want that board right there because every time the ball goes out, it should hit you right in the head because what you're doing actually is you're hurting yourself and you're hurting your own marriage. When you look at your mate, you are looking at a part of you. How often do we talk about that? When you look at your mate, you're looking at a part of you. So treat her well. Treat him well. Speak highly of him. Nourish and cherish the love of your life. And we get back into this passage and we see that these men are sitting there saying, you know, I, I want to trade up. I want a newer model. I want a new version. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to the offering or accepts them with the pleasure of your hands. And you ask why. And I know I've been, been kind of 
harking on that because in scripture we kind of can overflow the, the, the severity of what's going on here. These people have the audacity to come to God's altar and cry out and say, why aren't you blessing us when all the while they knowingly are breaking the covenant in order to unlawfully marry somebody else? Then it continues on and it says, it is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her. Let's go back. Broken faith is you have dealt treacherously, you have profaned her, you have been unfaithful, you have broken faith, you are not trustworthy or reliable to her or the standard that has been given. That's what's being said right there. And then he continues on. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. She's your partner. And she's part of your marriage covenant. So guys, uh, one quick thing I'm going to just throw out to you. Do, you. do you view your wife as your partner? Pause there for a minute. Do you see her as your partner? Okay. Equal, yet yes, you are the head of home. Cherishable, not something to be lowered or pressed down upon. Someone who's to be edified and brought up. Someone who's to be loved and encouraged. Someone who's to be cherished in Christ. Someone who you are to die for daily. Someone when you think that they should submit to you, the very question that you need to ask yourself is, would they submit to me because I'm modeling Christ? Or am I telling them to submit because I'm on a power trip? Those are the things that we need to be thinking about in our partnership with our wives. And one of the things that I want to encourage us in, church, is I think that the world has a great opportunity to see the blessedness of a godly marriage between individuals who are honoring him and honoring one another. And I think there's a great testimony that we can have to be able to demonstrate the joy of marriage and the blessedness that marriage brings as God has sovereignly designed it. And so we see that, number one, God views marriage among believers as a covenant before him and number two, our spouse is not, to, uh, not on lease with an option to buy. So when times are tough, we should not trade out for a newer model. And then we get into this last part. And really what we need to recognize is we are to guard our marriage in spirit and not break faith. And so the next question that I want to ask is, what are you doing to guard your marriage? Okay? Because what I will tell you is this, if you're not working to guard your marriage, and what I mean by that is to draw closer to God and to one another and look inwardly to your spouse. If you're just cruising along down the highway and you have essentially the cruise control on and you're looking around at the vistas, your marriage will begin to deteriorate. It may not fall apart, okay? 
but it will begin to deteriorate. So what are you doing actively to engage your spouse? Verse 15, has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. Scripturally, what's happening here, again, is God is working through the people of God as they marry, and obviously in the covenant of marriage, have relations with one another, they will produce godly offspring. That's what's happening. That's what God is after for his people. And then it says right there, so guard yourself in spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. And then we come to this challenging verse, Malachi 2.16. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in spirit and do not break faith. I want to dive into this, but before I do, I want to take just a moment and I want to read another passage out of the Love Dare, which is day 29, which is uh, essentially love's motivation. And that is this. It says, the love that's demanded from you in marriage is not dependent on your mate's sweetness or suitability. Okay? There are times when I am not very sweet to Kelly. And there are times when I'm not very suitable. Notice I didn't say that about her. The love between husband and wife should have one chief objective, honoring the Lord with devotion and sincerity. That's your objective. How am I honoring God with devotion and sincerity? And oftentimes when I talk to people in uh, marriage counseling or premarital counseling or whatever, I always give a picture and I say, look, geometrically speaking, what is the strongest shape that there is? It's a triangle. It's a pyramid, for lack of a better word. And I said, if you place yourself here and you place yourself there, okay, husband, wife, and you're going this direction and you're constantly combating one another, what you need to do is, is you need to place God above you. And when problems come, rather than looking this direction, the first thing you should do is look this direction. And as you draw closer to God, you will draw closer to one another. Because I'll tell you this, little hint, it's hard to stay mad at your wife after you pray with and for her when there's been a grievance. The trick is, guys, having the chutzpah to do it, to go to your wife and say, look, I know there's an issue, I know there's a problem, I know I'm mad at you, or I know you're mad at me, but let's pray together. And when you pray together, it is pretty darn hard to stay angry at your spouse. And so now we dive in, and we look at this. The fact it blesses our beloved in the process is simply a wonderful additional benefit. This change of focus and perspective is crucial for a Christian. Being able to wake up knowing that God is your source and supply, not just of your own needs, but also those of your spouse, changes the whole reason for interacting with your mate. I want to just throw something out. 
Okay, guys, do you pray for your wives that God blesses them, that they draw closer to them? Wives, do you pray for your husbands that God draws them closer to him in their devotion to you? Or guys, do you pray and complain about your wives in all their misgivings? And wives, do you cry out to God and complain about your husbands and all their misgivings? Change that and your marriage will be strengthened when you look and ask God to bless the person and encourage them in Christ. And now we get to this verse. I hate divorce. You know, personally, I spent a lot of time looking at this, and I will be honest with you, the church has not done a very good job in working with it. I know several of you have been divorced. I have been divorced myself. And in it, oftentimes, what happens in church is people who have been divorced are automatically categorized as second-rate citizens, okay? Now, please hear me. I'm not advocating divorce. I'm not trying to say divorce is good, okay? Any divorce hurts. It hurts. It rips. It tears. It should. But we also know that in Scripture, we see in Old Testament as well in New Testament, is that there are times when a divorce is valid. And so in this, when we look, number one, and we read, I hate divorce, often what the church has done is they've just categorically said, any divorce, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what occurred, no matter what happened, is a manner for essentially what? Separation from the church. Okay? No questions asked. You're divorced. You're gone. Too bad. So sad. We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to know. You are now essentially a second-rate citizen, and you need to wear the big scarlet letter D on your chest. Okay? And some of you have probably been very hurt by that. And some of you probably fought for your marriages and did everything you could. And maybe in those things you look and, biblically speaking, your marriage and its divorce were actually warranted. And what I want to encourage you in is to not feel as if you are a second-rate citizen. Look back Look at how you might be able to grow, how you might be able to improve, and should God put you in another relationship, look and say, okay, God, how can I move forward in this and honor you? But please don't ever think that if you've gone through a divorce that you are looked at by God as a second-rate Christian. The other thing that I want to encourage you in, and I'm going to just share this with you, Okay, um, how, how can I express this? Uh, I hate divorce, okay? That's a bold statement. And what I want to tell you is God doesn't cherish divorce. Okay, I, I, I want you to be 100% recognize that. God's not saying, wow, I can't wait for divorce. But I also want you to see that this verse has been taken way too extreme. Number one, in the carte blancheness of if you're divorced, we're done, Okay not looking at the biblical standards that are there, not looking at was there infidelity or is the uh, individual abandoning the spouse or is there abuse, whether it be essentially physical and or verbal. Those aspects, while not just automatically saying get a divorce, are grounds for 
a divorce. And if that's occurred, and that's something that's happened to you, trust me, I know the hurt and the pain that's there. But I also want to tell you that it's okay and that in those aspects, the divorce is warranted if that's what has occurred. Now, please hear me. I don't want just anybody saying, great, now I'm gonna look for a means that I can try to divorce my husband or my wife. But several of you have probably been very hurt by that. And several of you may have come to church always kind of feeling like you're on the out. I'm kind of part of the, the, the second-rate club, right? And I'm here to tell you, you're not. You're not. The other thing that I want to share with you is this. Bear with me on this. The Hebrew in this passage is one of, if not the most challenging passages to translate due to how those statements point to subject and relationship, okay? I'm trying to keep it simple, but just how it is translated is extremely tough. And so what I want to do is I want to show you a couple of things. The ESV study Bible, referring to Malachi 2.16, says that specifically. It says the Hebrew text of this verse is one of the most difficult passages in the OT to translate. Okay? Now, interestingly enough, as we look at a variety, I'm just going to give you kind of a smorgasbord of a few different translations, it shows the difficulty of the exactness of this translation. So in the NIV, 1973 or 1984, what we're reading out of today, it says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. Okay? Now the NASB is another translation, and for those of you that are interested, this is probably the most wooden translation that there is, and what I mean by that is this is the most word-for-word um, -word translation, right? Where other translations will take things, they will look at maybe the sentence structure, and then they will translate them to how we move with a sentence. Give you a quick example, okay? Spanish, la casa rosada, okay? If I translate that woodenly, like the NASB, literally, it's the house red, right? La casa rosada. That's the literal. Now, other translations would say, well, let's make that a little bit more readable, which is the red house. See where I'm going with this? Still red house. It's just we're making it more up to the English that we've got. So the NIV, or sorry, the NSB says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and whom who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. Now, interestingly enough, the ESV translates this due to the subject of the statement of the word this way. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. And to be honest with you, the NIV 2011, although I'm not a great fan of the majority of its translation, probably did a better job in translating it because they looked at the subject and they recognized that it is essentially pointing to the issue that is at hand. 
is the simplest way to say it. Not a carte blanche statement of I hate divorce, period, no matter what, no matter what it is. And it says, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. Okay? Now, in this, the point that I'm making is for you to see the difficulty of the Hebrew in this verse. And in it, it could mean God saying, I hate divorce, right? Possibly. But it could also mean the subject is that God is hating the men who are doing violence by divorcing their wives. And the reason that I'm saying it is this. God doesn't like divorce, okay? I want to be very honest, okay? I'm not, I'm not trying to hear to, to switch God's word and say, oh yeah, you know, it's okay, get a divorce, you're fine, whatever reason you want, go for it. But I'm also trying to encourage those of you who have been essentially hurt by the church when they pull out the carte blanche statement, you're divorced, God hates divorce, therefore God hates you. And I'm going to tell you, I've heard it. Personally. Now, not up here, okay? This is about God. This is about love. This is about Jesus, okay? It's not about me. But man, does that hurt. And what I want to tell you is this, that in this, God is not a fan of divorce, but God also gives biblical reasons for a divorce. And some of you have those reasons. And in that, I want to encourage you and say, you are loved by God and you are his child. You are not a second-rate citizen. And then we continue on, and it says this, so guard yourself in spirit and do not break faith. The point of all of this is, are you guarding your marriage? What are you doing to encourage your marriage? What are you doing to pour into your spouse? Not just getting something out of him or her. How are you building him or her up? How are you admonishing him or her? How are you drawing him or her closer to Jesus? Because what I want to tell you, in a covenant, it's not an if-then. It's not I love you if, then I will. It's I love you, period. Because that's how God loves us. And so here's what I want to encourage you with as we look at this. How does God view marriage? I want to just kind of summarize this and then I want to just give a couple of points for us to see. God views marriage as a covenant and does not take divorce lightly. We need to guard ourselves in spirit and not break faith. That's what God is after. And so with this, what I want to encourage us in, A, the reason that Malachi is going before the people and saying I have an issue with you, is they're looking for a way to get out of the contract covenant that they're in, okay? But also, what does it mean for us this morning? For those of us that are married, what I want to tell you is, what are you doing to guard your marriage? To pour into it? 
not just put it on cruise control and exist. And I don't know about you, but my hope and my prayer for however long I'm married to Kelly is that every year that we are married, our love grows deeper for one another. Doesn't mean that it's perfect. Doesn't mean that it's easy. Doesn't mean that we always get what we want, how we want. Even though we have dreams. Kelly and I have dreams. We have hopes. We have desires. Maybe they come true. Maybe they don't. But if they come true or they don't come true, regardless, I want and pray that my marriage to her is stronger a year from today than it is now. I pray that we are closer to God a year from now than we are today. I pray that we reflect God more in our marriage to other people a year from now than we do today. And I'm going to do what I can through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life to humble myself before God, be a, God who, or be a man who is worthy of God's faithfulness, who is leading my wife and encouraging her and walking her with her in spirit and in truth. And I pray that Kelly does the same. So guys, my encouragement to you during this week is to look and say, Lord, what can I do to really pour into my wife? Not to get anything out of it, but to give something holy to it. And ladies, what I want to encourage you in is, is how can I pour into my husband not to get anything out of it, but to simply honor and cherish your husband and encourage him in his walk with Christ. Guard yourself in spirit and do not break faith. This passage is a challenging one. This passage is a convicting one. This, challenge, this passage encourages us but it also helps us to look culturally at how marriage is viewed and then biblically at how marriage is viewed. The final thing that I want to encourage you with is this. For those of you who are single, okay, and who are looking for marriage or hoping to marry down the road, my word of encouragement to you is this. Look to God Look to God and be whole in Him. Okay? Don't look for a spouse to complete you. Right? I love Jerry Maguire. Right? Okay? Great movie. Wonderful romantic comedy. Right? But it's not, oh, you complete me. No. Be complete in who you are in Christ. And should God bring a spouse, may that spouse be complete in Christ. And then may the two of you not complete one another, but honor God in your covenant relationship. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and uh, we just thank you for you. I know this is a, a challenging verse. I know that for many it is an emotional passage. Lord, I know that for many it brings up possibly old wounds. And in that, Lord, I pray that it would encourage and comfort us. I pray that it would show us the seriousness of marriage. I would pray that it would show us the purpose of marriage. I pray that it would show us the blessedness of a godly marriage. 
But Father, I also pray that for those who feel as if they have a big scarlet letter D on their chest, that when they look to the love of God, when they look at the provision of God, that they would recognize that oftentimes many of the divorces are warranted in a biblical perspective. And Father, may that bring peace and rest and comfort to their souls. May that encourage them. May they realize that they are not a second-rate citizen, but they are loved and cherished just as much by our Heavenly Fathers and the joy that is there. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in your name, dear Jesus. We ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's children say, Amen.